Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash SKU. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Estellas and Seijin. Hi, I'm Tom Poles. I'm Director of Barts Cancer Centre in London. Lydia, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Dr. Lydia Makarov. I am the Chief Executive of Fight Bladder Cancer in the UK, and I'm also the President of the World Bladder Cancer Patient Coalition. Sounds spectacular, Lydia. Uh, today we're going to talk about advanced metastatic urethelial cancer. We're going to focus on that to a large extent from a, a patient perspective, which uh, I think we're going to do together, and I hope it's going to be fun. Do you want to kick off a little bit and talk about the impact of bladder cancer from a global perspective? Yeah, I'd love to. So urethelial cancer across the globe, it's the 10th most common cancer in the world and it is the 13th leading cancer-related cause of death. Uh, in Europe alone, we have uh, around 200,000 new cases every year uh, with around 65,000 deaths. In uh, North America, around 92,000 cases, 21,000 deaths. And we also see impacts in Latin America and the Caribbean, Africa, Oceania and Asia. When we're looking at it from the diagnosis perspective, one of the really important distinctions from, I think, is this issue around advanced disease and treatment up to advanced. I think it's getting more complicated, actually, because patients with locally advanced and maybe even muscle invasive disease actually in the end have advanced disease. But do you just want to talk about the impact of the disease spreading beyond the bladder? Yes. Uh, as, as you said, it, it really makes uh, all the difference. Uh, we really, if, if at all possible, as you know, we want to catch it early before it spreads beyond the bladder because as soon as it becomes locally advanced, as soon as it becomes uh, metastatic, then the survival rates really drop. And so that's, uh, that's not, not what we want. And then we do really struggle to give uh, hope to patients once they reach the metastatic stage. How much progress have we made over the last five to 10 years in bladder cancer? How many patients are we, are we curing? Curing? Yeah. Uh, oh, I think you know as well as I, um, Tom, that a cure is still, it's, it's a treatable disease um, and we're definitely extending lives yeah. uh, where you know and people are living longer lives yeah. better quality lives but unfortunately a cure of uh, when you're getting to the locally advanced or metastatic stage uh, is not there yet so we've got personalized therapies yes we've got new classes of drugs antibody yep. drug conjugates mm -hmm. we've got the immune therapies mm -hmm. established mm -hmm. chemotherapy's been there for some time but in terms of bringing these drugs together we haven't yet had that big breakthrough perhaps they've had in some other cancers that have led to a large proportion of patients going into long-term durable remission. But we kind of hope that by bringing some of these drugs together, particularly some of the antibody drug conjugates immune therapies, um, that we may end up with um, a higher proportion of patients going in into a longer-term remission. Do you think, um, when we look from a patient perspective, do you think patients understand where we are when they come in for the first time around how complicated urethelial cancers become and, and how do doctors approach that conversation with patients? I, th I think it is very difficult because, you know, even medical congresses, um, we're having a lot of debate about sequencing um, of different treatments and which treatments as well. So there is... There And there are just so many acronyms as well. People, you know, when they're talking about 
immunotherapies, uh, when they're talking about antibody drug conjugates, there is there is a lot of uh, education to be done, but there are the tools there. And a lot of the research nurses uh, are the ones who sit down and help patients explain uh, this. And it is a complicated field, but I think if we give um, the patients and the families the time and respect and resources, then we can work with them and, and have a discussion. Some patients... Uh, come to me and clinic and, and they just sort of kind of say, I saw a patient yesterday actually, and I came up with all this plan of some script and they just said to me, look, I'll just do what you want. Yeah. I'm yeah. really, um, um, but that's becoming less frequent. Yes. And what is becoming more f- common mm-hmm. in, 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 my, in my clinic is people coming in saying, I'm not sure everything is for me. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and they want to get involved in, and take some ownership yes. of this, this pathway. Yeah. Um, how does that, deci- that shared decision-making, how does that look at the moment from a patient's perspective and what do patients really need to know? Well, a lot of times something that patients actually find very helpful is speaking to someone who has gone through similar treatment as well and that really helps them understand uh, the, the different Uh, treatment pathways but I think we need to tell them uh, we need to give them the tools and ask them the questions as well so what is important to you how many trips to the hospital do you want to make Um, what about your sex life Um, what about going to work what about your body image Um, do you still want to do gardening you planning on traveling so this is gonna be a general question you're probably going to throw it back at me very quickly how much do patients want to know about the future I, once again, I think um, I think it depends on the individual patient, and I think we just need to ask them that question. And what about written information? How important is printed information rather than verbal information? Yes. So um, a lot of patients, when they speak to me, they say, as soon as I heard the word cancer, everything else is white noise. So I think at that very initial consultation, when you're saying to someone, you have bladder cancer, any other verbal information that you can give after that can sometimes be lost. So I think in that stage, written information is very helpful, but not too much. So, Are there other forms of education that patients need to be involved with in this process? Yes. So sometimes that we ask patients, um, ask your clinician, um, are you, uh, if the clinician is comfortable, record the conversation. So you can listen to it afterwards. Um, Join a patient forum as well. Speak to other patients. Call a helpline. Watch webinars as well. So there are many different types of information. But once again, we have to match that to the learning style of the individual patient. What role do patient's friends and family have in this journey? I'll tell you a story. I saw a patient yesterday and he said, I wasn't going to have any treatment. Mm -hmm. But my wife persuaded me to. Mm -hmm. And I want to have the chemotherapy Mm -hmm. now. But it's not what I want. What role does the family have in this process? Yes, so it's it's tricky. So I'll talk more about the logistical side and then I'll talk about the emotional side. So it's often either the children or the spouse of the patient that comes, uh, you might see this with the big binder that yeah. has all of the treatment uh, notes and all of the medical records. And it's often the spouse or the child who will do the logistics of making the interviews and uh, making the appointments and nagging the patient to, to call and, and follow up. So there's um, there's that role. Um, there's also in the treatment decisions as well and emotionally. And so I think it's different if you've got cure if you've got curative potential or if you've got good treatment potential and you know that perhaps 
if the patient does have the treatment, then sometimes the spouse or the child can have a very positive role in saying, you know, um, let's let's go for the treatment. Um, however, when we're talking end of life, sometimes that can be difficult when perhaps the patient is saying, now for me, it's just about the quality of life rather than the duration. I want to go into hospice. I want to go into palliative care. And sometimes the children or the spouse are just like, let's keep on fighting. And so I think when we get to end of life, sometimes there can be a challenge there. How have the development of these new drugs with long-term benefits with mm -hmm. some, yeah. how have they changed dialogue with patients? They give hope. Um, so it's really wonderful. And uh, both you and I have spoken to patients on innovative therapies who have said that they were given a terminal disease and now they're having many, many more good quality years with their loved ones. And so I think it's wonderful that they can have uh, longer life and also better quality life. What I've heard, Leah, from today is that bladder cancers a common cancer. Mm -hmm. um, we've heard that it's also particularly in the advanced setting, uh, life-threatening still for the majority of patients. We've talked about these new group of drugs, antibody drug conjugates, immune therapy, targeted therapies, changing the landscape and offering patients hope. But we've also talked about the changing dialogue between doctors and patients, patients becoming more empowered, and indeed patients carers becoming more empowered in that, in that process education and training, written information, verbal information, being really important to help patients on that journey. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we forward? I'd also like to emphasize the role of the nurse as well, because it's often the nurse that spends a lot of time with the patients uh, explaining uh, the, the different treatment options as well, giving the written information, and then also the valuable role that uh, peer support organizations uh, can have as well in reminding people that they're not alone, that there are other people who are living um, good quality lives with bladder cancer and that there is hope ahead. Yeah, thank you for your time today and, and thank you everyone for listening to us. I hope it's enjoyable. Thank you, Tom. Hi, I'm Lydia Makaroff. I'm the Chief Executive of Fight Bladder Cancer in the UK and the President of the World Bladder Cancer Patient Coalition. Uh, Dr. Poles, would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Tom Poles. I'm an oncologist in London. So, Dr. Poles, uh, can you tell us about muscle invasive bladder cancer and the therapies? What are the treatment options? So, muscle invasive urothelial cancer, the treatment is based around cystectomy. Um, Neoadjuvant chemotherapy is associated with survival advantage and has level 1A evidence. Um, adjuvant nivolumab has a disease free survival advantage without yet a noble survival advantage and is used in Europe and PDO1 positive population and in the US in an all-comers population. Radiation therapy is seen as an alternative uh, to cystectomy. Many people feel cystectomy though is the standard of care. So let's talk about metastatic urothelial carcinoma. It's more complicated here. So uh, what's, uh, what's happening in the clinic and uh, what's happening in clinical trials? So the treatment options for metastatic urothelial cancer have changed a great deal. Over the, uh, over the last 40 years. Um, chemotherapy was the standard, GEM-CIS or GEM-CARBO, depending on kidney function. Um, but that's uh, now evolved beyond, and we have in, developed the immune checkpoint inhibitors, maintenance of Valimab, sequenced directly after chemotherapy, is considered the standard of care. And that's part now of first-line therapy, so GEM-CIS, GEM-CARBO, maintenance of Valimab till progression, 
and then second line therapy at progression in fortumabidotin, which is an antibody drug, drug, drug conjugate targeting Neptin 4, and AE is the payload, and that drug is considered now essentially second line therapy, um, and that's a standard treatment. There are other agents, sasituzumab globotecan, which is a different antibody drug conjugate with single arm data supporting its use, which is licensed in the US, and erdofisnib, which is an FGFR um, targeted therapy, so individuals with FGFR DNA alterations in their tissue, erdofitinib has single agent data as well, also response rates of about 40%. So it's a larger package of drugs now than we had before. Chemotherapy, of course, immune therapy as part of first-line therapy, antibody drug conjugates, and targeted therapy. And what about combination therapy? Combination therapy is something that's developing. Um, we've tried to combine immune therapy and chemotherapy together with actually not that much success. But the moment we're developing antibody drug conjugates and fortumabidotin with immune therapy with what looks like better data. And it's possible that we'll be using infortumabidotin and pembrolizumab in the US in the not too distant future based off a randomized phase two trial. And the most exciting study for me at the moment uh, is EB302, which is um, infortumabidotin plus pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy. We haven't been able to reproduce or replace frontline chemotherapy yet. So the current standard of care is frontline chemotherapy and maintenance of Alimab, followed by infortumab doting, that's an established standard of care. But there is a chance that we can replace frontline chemotherapy with combinations of immune checkpoint inhibition and antibody drug conjugates in the future. Then we'll have uh, three different uh, types of tools when we talk about systemic therapy and if we also speak to the, the surgeons and the radiotherapists as well, then when we put this all together, then we should hopefully be able to, uh, as, we, as we talked about, have more, speak to the patients and have more personalized therapy that are matched to the exact patient characteristics. I think that's right. So we've spoken a lot about the patients that are fit enough, um, platinum eligible, um, but what about the platinum ineligible patients? Well, there is a group of patients with advanced urothelial cancer who, uh, whose cancer is either so advanced that it's affecting the way their body functions and they're unable to perform normal tasks. Um, and, um, and some patients are so unwell that they have to spend all day in bed. It's very hard to give those patients chemotherapy. They get all the side effects and none of the benefits. And then there's a second group of patients who have multiple comorbidities for whatever reason, mm -hmm. and, uh, and they struggle, we struggle to give those patients chemotherapy as well. In this disease, it tends to affect people who are older rather than younger, tends to affect people who smoke cigarettes, and so they tend to have comorbidities. So we are dealing with a population where each patient needs a personalized type of plan, and unfortunately we're still in a position where we still can't offer all patients the most effective therapies because of other things going on in their lives. So there's more work to be done, I think, on looking um, at what are the best treatment options um, for older people, people who don't have good kidney function, people with more, more co comorbidities, and making sure that they're not left behind when we're doing research and development on new drugs. So different uh, types of treatments have uh, different types of adverse events. Uh, do you uh, want to quickly go through what you see as the main types of adverse events when we look at chemotherapy, immunotherapy, anti-drug conjugates and targeted therapies? Yeah, so I think we're all 
familiar with chemotherapy and adverse events, although it's really important from a patient's perspective to recognise that not all chemotherapy is the same. And chemotherapy's moved on from the 1950s and 60s. I see many patients who come to see me and said, well, my mum had chemotherapy and I'll, I don't want to go through it. Well, I'll do what she had. And actually the drugs that we've developed in urothelial cancer are specifically for people who perhaps are um, a bit older, because we know that's the average population is a bit older, and we can actually personalise the dosing of chemotherapy to make sure it's acceptable for patients. Um, the chemotherapy drugs that we give don't tend to cause hair loss, for example. Um, they are myelosuppressive, they do affect the way the bone marrow works, and they do predispose patients to infection, and that's really important. And the platinum family of drugs, well, they're associated with nausea and vomiting, which is an issue. They're also associated with peripheral neuropathy, which is important. Um, lethargy is relatively common as well. Um, and so while patients are receiving chemotherapy, they don't feel it well, feel as well. They're at risk of increased infection, and they tend to feel a little bit sick at times. And so this process means that chemotherapy is not super attractive, but remember, it is effective. 45% response rate, significant delay in progression-free survival, significant overall survival. The immune checkpoint inhibitors are easier to give for the majority of patients. Perhaps only 10 or 20% of patients come really into harm's way. But the adverse events of, of immune therapy, which essentially is reactivation of the immune system, can be devastating, actually. It can cause bad shortness of breath. It can cause acute liver toxicity, acute kidney toxicity. It can cause very bad skin rashes. Um, and it can cause an arthritis-type picture. And in fact, it can cause almost anything. And then I say to my team, you know, if it's unexpected and you're not sure what it is, it's probably immune-related adverse events. Relatively rare, but actually potentially life-changing. So really important. The antibody drug conjugates all have individual-type toxicity. We've talked about infortumabidocin. That has a triad of skin toxicity. It has peripheral neuropathy. And it can also cause diabetes, for example, sasituzumab govitecan different, causing lethargy, diarrhea, neutropenia. And so each of those drugs, as with each chemotherapy drug, will have a different profile. And then finally, the targeted therapies, and I can use erdofitinib, which is the FGFR inhibitor, and that drug causes hyperphosphatemia, it can cause fatigue, it can cause quite bad nail toxicity and a sore mouth. So there's a huge amount of education and training we need to do with healthcare professionals and patients, because many of these patients will go through all four of these treatments, and they need to expect a different journey with each agent. And I think we also need to encourage patients, whenever they experience something unusual in their body, to call the nurse as well. To uh, They should have a contact number that they can call immediately to either allay their concerns and say, you know, this, this is something that you do not need to worry about, or this is an early warning sign, please come in uh, immediately and uh, we can fix this. We're, we're talking here about patient preferences, needs and wishes. And when you're speaking to a patient and you're explaining the various different treatment options, what questions are you asking them so they can be actively involved in deciding on the best treatment for them? Patient goals need to be explored. Um, I think patients need to recognise that there is risk and benefit in all of our treatments. And we would only offer treatments where we believe the risk-benefit ratios favours the benefit. I think we need to be really straightforward with our patients and say for the majority of people, you'll be living with this cancer. And for that reason, not all of these treatment decisions are black and white. 
Yes, and I think uh, honest communication about both the risks and the benefits of the treatment can make sure that it is true uh, joint decision making. So uh, we've sp spoken a bit about what are the, the factors that facilitate communication between patients and carers and healthcare professionals. Um, is there any advice that you would give to your fellow clinicians about how to improve their dialogue uh, between patients and, and carers? I'm not sure I'm, how qualified I am to give other doctors advice. And I think that my personal reflection over time, where I've been doing this for a while, my personal reflection over time is that I think exploring the patient's um, desire for information at the beginning and their understanding of the process is really important. And I think the other piece that's really important is that I, my experience is the majority of patients want to be really well informed. And I think that because their aspects of this journey are difficult, and actually for many patients, we still haven't cured this disease. I think we need to be very transparent about that because many patients do not want to go through multiple lines of therapy um, despite, at times, the benefit-risk ratio favouring benefit. Yes, sir, I, I would agree with you. And I think one of the gifts that clinicians can give patients is time as well. So uh, I know that it's extremely challenging in many countries for clinicians to be able to give as much time as they can to patients, but um, that that is very valuable as well. In conclusion, uh, we've talked about the difference between uh, muscle invasive bladder cancer and metastatic and locally advanced bladder cancer. Uh, the quite complicated uh, treatment options that are available, especially when we get to the metastatic stage. Uh, the factors that can improve clinician and patient uh, information, dialogue and decision making. Is there anything you'd like to add, Tom? No, I think you summarised it really nicely and uh, just thank you for, uh, for asking all the questions today. Thank you and thank you for watching. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.